Good morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into our, our time of study in Matthew 8. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of your word, that as we look at it, sharper than any two-edged sword, that, God, it is the thing that as we read, that corrects us, that trains us in righteousness. So I ask, Lord, <clears throat> that as we look at it, that we wouldn't merely read it, but it would read us. God, that it would change us, that it would show us the places that we don't follow Christ with our hearts. That as we look at pictures of your authority, three different sets of verses that have pictures of your authority, that we would stand in awe of just how amazing you are. I pray that, Lord, anything I would say um, would be guided by your Spirit and you would keep me from error, and you would keep me from things that wouldn't be helpful. I pray for my own heart and all of us that we would be receptive to your spirit now, and as we may feel conviction that you would always comfort us. I pray that in all of this, that as we look at the person of Jesus, that he would stand um, off the text and absolutely amaze us, that we would just be in awe and in wonder, and that we would follow and worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in Matthew chapter 8. And really the introduction of Matthew 8, um, 8, 8, 8, 8.18 and following, really the rest of the chapter, is really the same introduction as last week. Um, if you weren't here, I'm going to try to give that uh, briefly so you can understand. But we've been studying through the book of Matthew since December. And... There's been a lot of kind of things established for us. And what we've seen in chapters 1 through 4 is this man being called out and being shown to us that he is the Messiah. And then he goes into, in chapter 5 through 7, this first teaching discourse. And there will be several in, in the book of Matthew, but chapter 5 through 7 is one of the most famous. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so in chapter 4, we see Jesus establishing authority um, but all he's doing is healing. You know, he's, he's going around. We, we see that at the very end of chapter 4. He's going around and he's healing people. And then after that, Matthew shows us in 5 through 7, this establishment of his, his authority that's being made in chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount where he's saying things like, um, you've heard it said, but I say. I know the Old Testament teaches that, but I, I say, not, not saying I'm better than it, but saying my words are just as equal and just as authoritative as the, as the text of the Old Testament. There's also places where he is in the very end of it saying, whoever's going to enter the kingdom of heaven must. And so he's establishing authority by being able to say, I have the authority to say who enters the kingdom of heaven and who doesn't. And so throughout 5 and 7, as he's doing this teaching discourse, we saw in 4 he's healing, and now all of a sudden he speaks with this authority that no one ever has and so now he goes back into nine and chapter matthew goes into chapters nine and ten and he does healings again so there's a difference between the healings in chapters eight and what we're seeing and there's a difference in chapter four in that chapters five through seven or right there screaming out to us this man has authority so these healings we're seeing in chapter eight are screaming out this man has authority and so what Matthew is trying to establish for us in all of chapter 8 and chapter 9, which, we're, which we've been studying, is the authoritative power of Christ. That Christ has amazing authority. And as we're looking through these, these narratives, <clears throat> more than likely, if you've spent any time in church, they're very familiar. 
They're familiar stories. You've heard these before. And so what I'm wanting and what I've asked for all of us, including myself, that the Lord would do is that we wouldn't just kind of blow through the narratives and say, oh, yeah, I remember that story. That was a good one. Um, And what was the example Jesus did for us? Oh, I'll do that. While Jesus does set an example for us in the text that we can look at and say, oh, that's how I should act. That's how I should be. What I want us to do is look at Jesus. Watch this, because really this is the first time in Matthew we've gotten to do this, um, because we had this huge chunk of teaching, and before it was him being called out to start his public ministry. And right as he started his public ministry, we saw the Sermon on the Mount. So this is now in Matthew 8 and following the first chance we're getting to just watch this man Jesus interact with people, love people, care for people, have amazing compassion for people, um, stop and help the least of, of these people. And so as we're seeing this, it'd be easy for us to just say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. But instead of just saying, oh, Jesus stopped and helped the leper, I'm supposed to help the outcast of society. I want us to even take a step back from that and say, I need to just be in awe and wonder of this man. So what I'm asking and what I'm hoping for is that as we're looking through the narrative of the rest of, of Matthew, that as you see pictures of just the compassion of our Savior, that it would reignite your heart with love affections for him. Yes, I mean, we want to follow his example. But even more so, we want to just be amazed at this man's love. We want to be amazed at how much he loves us and fall in love with him for that. And so we see that really um, the picture that's being drawn out for us in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is the issue of authority. And that's shown to us as chapter 7 is closing. You can see that in verses 28 and 29. Um, it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, this is the, the huge sermon, the best sermon ever preached, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so they're going to be driving into now for the next couple chapters that we want you to see the authoritative power that this man has and what that means for us. And so he is a man of authority and we can see that there's a twofold response to this authority that we're supposed to have. We see that twofold response right there in 7:28-29 and 8:1. The twofold response is number 1, um, astonishment that when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished. When we see this authoritative power, and hopefully as we look at the text today, last week, this week, and continuing, as you see the authoritative power that Christ has, that we would stand in awe and just be astonished. This man is doing, we can kind of blow through and say, oh yeah, he stopped, he stopped the, the, uh, the storms with just the word. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. Wait a second. He just spoke and everything stopped. That's authority. We need to kind of reverse our minds and retrain our minds to be in absolute astonishment of these kinds of things, that a man can talk to a storm, that a man can touch a leper and not become unclean, but make the unclean leper clean. We need to stop and be amazed at this and be astonished, as it's saying in 728. But not just mere astonishment is enough. We can't just say, awesome, all right, and then kind of just head on. There's, there's something else that he's calling for. In 28, it says they were astonished. They were just absolutely amazed because no one taught like that. And then it said, and when they came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And that's our second response. It's not just astonishment, but follow. When we see and we come into contact with the Savior of the world and we find ourselves astonished at him, the only right response is, my life is yours. 
My life is yours. And so as we're looking at the authoritative power of Christ, we saw this last week in four different healings in verses 1 through 17. Hopefully, the Lord is being kind to all of us to guide our hearts to say, I've got to follow him. This, this authoritative power is it's drawing me in, saying, I have to follow. And we saw four pictures, four different healings. And the reason why I want to kind of review these healings, just for a second, because we're going to see a different type of authority being manifested in the second half of this chapter. It's not with healings. Though they are miracles, it's not with healings at all. The first half, we see the healing of a leper. And then after that, we see the healing of the centurion's servant. So the centurion runs up and says, my servant's ill. And Jesus, he goes, well, you don't have to come. The servant says, you don't have to come. Just say the word. And he does it. And then we see right after that, the glorious awesomeness that Peter gets to live with his mother-in-law. And Peter, um, Peter's mother-in-law is healed by, by a touch. That was a joke. And then verse 16, that um, it's really bad when I have to tell you. That just shows I'm just so not funny. But I want to be, but it's, I'm just not. 16, um, <laughs> that evening they brought many. And so we can see in 16, that fourth miracle, where all of a sudden that many were coming. So we saw one, 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 and all of a sudden many were coming in verse 16. And being healed. So we see this authoritative power of Christ being displayed through healings. Now there's a shift in the second half of this chapter. And his authority is going to be established in different ways. Not with healings, but differently. And we can see, as Andy read for us, that the way he's going to show his authoritative power is in three different ways. Um, And the first set is through calling followers. Jesus is flexing his authoritative power by saying, follow me. I I mean, I don't do that, (laughs) and I shouldn't. I don't have that kind of authority to just say, follow me your whole life. And he's showing his authoritative power that. And by the second one, he's showing his authoritative power by calming a storm. And the third one, by casting out demons. All right, so we're, that's kind of the, where we are, where we're going, and what's, what's happening here. And so we, we need to know what we're building on is healings and going into a new way of showing his authority. Not through healings, but still through miracles and through these, sets of, these different kinds of miracles. So let's, let's, let's go through the text here, at, starting at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him which is what we would think he would want, he says. He gave orders to go over to the other side. Why are you running away from the crowds, Jesus? I thought that's what you wanted. Um, We know that, we talked about this last week, that whenever great crowds were coming just for healing, he didn't want to be known as just a mere healer. He didn't want to just be known as, my my ministry's healing. He wants to be known, what Matthew 1.21 told us is, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Not just heal them physically, but heal the greatest sickness, our corruption from sin. And so he doesn't want to be seen as just a mere healing ministry. And so he's like, all right, I'm out. Y'all, all y'all want is healed, be, to be healed. And so he's, he's leaving. And it says he goes to the other side and a scribe. You know, a scribe is someone who lived with relative ease, relative comfort. More than likely, every single person in this room can identify with the scribe. Because we do live in relative ease and comfort. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. You didn't choose the country that you were born in or the year that you were born in. God chose that. And so don't feel bad. Just how do we walk this road now that we're here in the 21st century in America? All right. So the scribe came up and said, all right, so let me, let me kind of stop here and just let you see here. We're talking about the authority of Jesus. And so um, the first thing that I want you to see is the authority of Jesus is being shown to us by calling disciples Calling disciples. That's what's going on in the text. He's calling these disciples. These two would-be disciples because they more than likely don't follow him. But 
What I want us to see is, all right, if Jesus is calling these disciples and his authority is being shown here, what does that mean for us? So the first thing that it means for us from this first section, the authority of Jesus demands from us, number one, for us to make sacrifices that are personal and costly. That's what we're going to see here in this first set. That our following him, that his authority calling us to be followers means that we're to make sacrifices that are personal and costly. Jesus is showing his authority and how he calls disciples. And he's going to make demands upon these people that are personal and costly. And we're going to know that this is the case, or we're going to know this is true by these two little vignettes of conversations that he has with two different people. Now, I've handled this text actually fully in Luke chapter 9, I don't know, at least a year ago or something. Um, th- there was three disciples in Luke's version, which says nothing about inerrancy. Luke wanted to do all three, and Matthew just chose to do two. It's just the way it is. Um, but I handled that whole, this whole text as just one sermon. So I'm going to kind of go through it and hopefully bring out what's Matthew's point. Matthew's point <clears throat> is that he's wanting to show us the authority of Jesus. All right, so let's look at these two vignettes really fast. You can see them right there in 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. The first one is the scribe came up and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a pretty strong statement. He's saying that he is willing to go anywhere Jesus wants to go. And Jesus, since he's God, has the ability to look into this man's heart and diagnose the issue right away. And so Jesus doesn't say, Oh, you do. Let's talk about that. It's just... His answer diagnoses the man's problem immediately. And clearly the man's problem is shown to us in this next little thing that he is not ready to make a costly decision in following Christ. He's not willing to lay down everything. It says that right here. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Scribe, you have it easy. You have it comfortable. Everything's fine. I understand that your heart loves that. You want to follow me? You've got to be like me. I don't even have a word laid in my head. Would-be follower more than likely turns away. His authority is shown by calling these disciples, but here he's showing us that this man's heart was not where it should be. And it should cost us something. Decisions to follow Christ should cost us something. We know that all decisions should cost us something. Um, <laughs> I've debated. I'm just going to do it. All right, so... Um, this past week, my seven-year-old decided that she just wanted bangs. You know, she wanted bangs. She said, I'm going to get some bangs. And, and without us knowing, decided to cut her hair and get some bangs. And so we're going to take pictures. And so decisions cost. So she cuts her hair. We're going to take pictures. Post it on Facebook. There's a, decisions cost something. Um, but anyway, that's just a decision. It's, it's true. Decisions cost something. Um, we know that whenever you say, I'm going to follow Christ, that's my decision. It's going to cost something. Now, that's a negative thing because that, that following meant cost something that was negative. And following Christ means costing you things that are positive, like it moves you forward in your walk with Christ. But All right, 21. So that's the first vignette we see is that... Um, It's supposed to cost you something. And I just want you to see this. Don't miss this. In 420, um, where disciples are being called, and these disciples actually follow Jesus, in 420 it says this. um, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. It cost them something. What was it? They put down their nets and they followed him. So Matthew's showing us here that these, this man right here in vignette 1 didn't do what happened in 420. 
He wasn't really wasn't willing to do it. The second vignette is at forty one forty two. I'm sorry, twenty one twenty two says another one of the disciples said to him, "Lord, let me first go bury my father." And Jesus said to him, "Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead." So, this is not a this is not an uncommon request. He's saying, you know, I need to fo- I need to bury my father. This was generally a practice deal. I mean, this is what happens. And Jesus' answer is absolutely stunning. Follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That, I mean, is Jesus the most insensitive person in the world that calls people? I don't think so. Again, because he's Jesus, he's able to see what's going on in the life of this man. And in the heart of this man, this man <clears throat> is wanting to put family allegiances primary to Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, Jesus is your highest allegiance. He's primary and family comes second. This is shown to us again in 4, whenever Matthew's calling. We saw in 4.20 they left their nets. Look at 4.22. Whenever he calls um, James and John, there were men in their nets and their, with their father. In 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So we can see right there that these men, James and John, are doing exactly here. I'm willing to leave even my family. Jesus, you're my highest allegiance. And then he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I mean, (laughs) in other words, leave those who are spiritually dead to do the physical burying of the dead when they die. We've got greater things going on. So Jesus' authority is being shown by calling disciples. All right, that's the first one. I do want to take one little thing and let you see something because again, Matthew's writing to Jews and I want to continually point out to you that the point of the book of Matthew is Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to continually show you all these places where Jesus is the Messiah so you can know. Right here in verse 20, it says, But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the first place in the book of Matthew where he uses the designation Son of Man. And this is because in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, this was the title that was given to the coming Messiah. And the Jews were completely acquainted with the Old Testament. And so Matthew is pointing back over to Daniel 7, and they all know it's Daniel 7, by calling him the Son of Man, saying, you who are Jewish that are listening, Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in front of the scribe, who were the Pharisees, who were the Jews, calling himself the Son of Man, saying, I'm the Messiah. Showing his authority, showing that he's God. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the first one here. But let's kind of... Stop here as we look at 18 through 22 and say, all right, Jesus is calling a disciple. And one of the main things I can get from it is that it's supposed to cost me something to follow him. How much is it really costing you to follow him? Now, I know that's a different question in the 21st century in America than what the first century followers had to ask. I know it's a different question, but there's still, it's still a valid question. We're still supposed to have some kind of following. And so what does that mean? I think that it means it's death to my own self-interest. It's death to me putting my, my, my heart and my desires and what I want on the throne of my heart. I don't worship myself anymore. Instead, I take myself off and my selfish ambition and my selfish desires off the throne of my heart and I put Christ on the throne. And he is the one who rules and reigns. This is what it costs to be his follower. So is that what it's costing you? Following Christ should cost everything. Now, let's be really clear here, all right? Really clear. 
because I don't want you to confuse and misunderstand the gospel. Um, in one sense, salvation costs nothing because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Like he, he paid it all. It doesn't cost me anything. Salvation is a free gift to me. But in another, all to him I owe, it costs us to follow him now, not less than everything. He paid everything for my salvation. Now I give him everything. Why don't we do it? Why don't we seem to, especially in our context, why do we seem to have vestiges of our heart that seem to hold dear to other things than Christ? There's a writer named J.C. Ryle that was diagnosing this, this apathy that we tend to have as believers. Um, what is this apathy that we tend to have? And this is what he says. It's not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants. So he's talking about Christians. It's not open belief or open, open unbelief or open sin. So much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the busy, business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. Following Christ is supposed to cost us something. And we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to look like the rest of the people. If we're going to follow Jesus, when He calls us, He has the authoritative power to call us. He has the authoritative power to set the terms of what it's supposed to look like. And we're supposed to follow. So that's, that's the first thing that's being displayed to us in this authority of Christ. And then we're going into the second one. So again, He's showing us authority, not through healings, but in different ways now. And this one is by the way He's calling people. He has the authority to do that. And the next two are miracles, and these are, these are a little bit different. And they're, I think they're compounding progressively in absolute amazement until we get to chapter 9. But here we're going to see in 23 through 27 the way that Jesus is establishing his authority is through his authority over the, the creative order, authority over nature. He's showing that in calming a storm. Whenever there's a big storm going on and he speaks and it stops, he's showing all the people there, I have authority over nature. I have authority over creation. All right, so let's look at the text. 23, it says... Um, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, remember what we just read. Remember what we just fed. This Matthew's wanting to show you. Those two would-be disciples didn't follow. But when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So, he's wanting to show you. This is what, this is what happens. We want you to be a disciple that follows. Now, funny enough, um, <laughs> these disciples are going to follow him. But we're going to see in 27 that they're not still fully understanding who it is they're following because they say, what sort of man is this? Like we're following. They all of a sudden, we're following you, but who are you? Um, anyway, so it says, they followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, which was a very common thing um, in this particular area of the world. There was 680 feet below sea level. Storms would just arise out of nowhere. It was a very, very common thing um, in this time. It says, a great storm arose on the sea that the boat was being swamped by the waves but he was asleep. And it's just like Jonah. There's a big, huge storm, and Jonah's down sleeping. But this is obviously Jesus, and he's not a sinner like Jonah. Um, so Jonah was asleep. I'm sorry. Jesus was asleep, and <clears throat> they went, and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Now, the answer that Jesus gives when we read it, it, it reads, and it sounds like this is a little bit of a rebuke coming to the disciples. 
And he says, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So this is coming towards them, and, and it sounds a little bit like a rebuke. Why is Jesus rebuking the disciples? Why is it that they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing? Is, it, um, is he rebuking them because he just loves sleep? And, you know, we all know there's some people, I'm not going to name any names, that you just don't wake up. You let them wake up on their own terms, and maybe they'll, uh, you know, in 30 minutes be a little bit different. You wake them up, you know, you might get a black eye or something. It's not that. It's not like Jesus is just a bad sleeper, and when you wake him up, he's just like mad for the first 30 minutes. That's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the, what kind of always is shown to us in the text of Scripture is that when there's a problem, and there was a massive problem here, there was a big storm. And they say, I know who to go to. Jesus. Perfect. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. So he's not upset that they would come to him when there's a problem. This is what we should do as well. Instead, the problem is not that they woke him up, which is just crazy if it would be, but instead that their faith was small. We see that in the response. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Of you of little faith. One, one uh, commentator says that, this little faith, this phrase little faith, is not necessarily meaning small faith, but impoverished faith. It's just poor. Just not having a growth that it should have. Impoverished faith. And it says, O you of little faith. Now, don't miss, because Matthew's filled with um, trying to show you contrasts where we see his followers that know him have little faith in 26 and then over in 8.10, we see a Gentile who has such faith that causes Jesus to marvel. Pretty amazing. Matthew's trying to show us always, to the Gentiles especially, um, just because you're a child of Jesus, that doesn't establish, and that's the whole point of verses 11 and 12, when Jesus says, just because you're um, in the line of Abraham does not mean you have special rights. It's faith that saves. It's faith that saves. And so he's calling these, these d- disciples who are more than likely mostly Jewish, little faith, and then he's marveling at someone who has such faith. So he says, why are you, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then, so he's, <laughs> he stands up, the storm's going crazy all behind him, and he takes time just to rebuke them while it's still going crazy. I don't know if they're actually listening or still freaking out about the storm. And then he says, he rebukes them, and then he says, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And so it all calms down. So what I want us to see here is this. The authority of Jesus is being established for us in that he has the right to speak to storms or all nature and creation, and they obey creation obeys. When it's raining, I can't walk outside and say, stop, it, it doesn't work. Or if it's not, you know, whatever. You know, when I plant my seed and I say, okay, come on, it doesn't work. But this man has the authority to speak to creation and it obeys. That's amazing. So, what does that mean for us? Here's the second thing. Jesus' authority demands for us to marvel at his power over nature and believe him. For us to marvel, that should say at his power. It probably says and. It should say at. For us to marvel at his power over nature and believe. And this word faith is, is believe. For us to marvel at his power over nature. So what could happen is this. Um, as we're reading this text, if we kind of stop there and say, 
Oh, the point of 23 through 27 is when he says, why are you afraid of little faith? Oh, you have little faith. We can say, oh, the point of this text is if I don't fear, then I can have greater faith. So what I'm supposed to learn is it's really this is all about me. This text is about me. It's decrease fear, increase faith. That's what I'm supposed to get. And we could surmise that that's maybe, and while that might be true, more than likely that's not the point of 27, 23 through 27. It's probably less to do about us and far more to do about Christ and establishing his authority. But we like to make it about us. We, we generally like to make things about us. Um, but that's more than likely not the point. Although, yes, little, faith, little fear, greater faith. But let's see what the actual point is this. Um, instead of it being about us, the interrogative or the question at the end of this section leads us or lends us to know who and what this whole thing's about, which is about Jesus' authority in 27. And the men marveled, which is what we're supposed to do. Jesus' demand causes us to marvel and, and exercise faith or believe. Marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this guy that has this kind of authority? This is amazing. That's the point. So it's not about fear and faith a little bit, but the bigger idea is a Christological thing that he's trying to point, a, a, a thing about Christ that he's trying to show us. And there's, there's a little bit of a contrast I want you to see that Matthew's showing us here. It's showing us the, the extreme humanity of Christ where he's literally, in verse 24, asleep. This is so human. We get tired Jesus was human. He got tired. He had been ministering for a while and had grown tired and needed to sleep. But in, in the same text where his humanity is being displayed to us, his deity is on the forefront as well. Because we see this man, when he says, what sort of man is this? Stand up and speak to creation and it obeys. So this, this is very Christological, showing us what sort of man is this? This is the God-man. This is the Messiah which, with whom, if this is the case, just like point two says, we are to marvel at his power over nature and we are to believe. That is the right response of us. So we're not, as we see this, you can see, like the question that they ask is, they don't say, um, whenever they see him do this amazing work and speak to the sea in Calmet, they don't say, what are we, um, what, what did he do or what are we supposed to do? Instead, the question they ask is, who is this? Who is this? D.A. Carson, commenting on this section, says, faith, which is what we're supposed to have, urgently needs to know not so much what Jesus will do or what promises he may have made that are applicable to this or that situation, but faith urgently needs to know who is Jesus, who is this guy? That's the question they ask. Who is this? And so we've seen his authority over creation. Now, we've seen healings. We've seen his ability or authority to call disciples. We've seen his authority now over the created world, over everything physical. And now it's even going to go progressively even more. Now we're going to see his authority over the non-physical, the unseen. And then the next section. And this is all making a pinnacle in chapter 9, which I'm going to show you in just a second. 
But let's look at this next section where Jesus' authority is being shown over the spiritual realm or the demons. It says this in 28. And when he had came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, so this means he, he left and went across to another side, and this other side that it's talking about was a region that was filled with Gentiles. This was, this was a Gentile region in what's known as the Decapolis. Decapolis just means Deca, Ten, Polis City, Ten Cities. So there's ten cities here, and these are small cities, small little villages, um, and he went across to this to a thoroughly Gentile area. No understanding of the Messiah, no understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and we can see they freak out and like get out of here at the very end because um, they just don't understand what they're dealing with. And so he goes over to this region of the Gadarenes, or this country of the, um, of the Gadarenes, and two demon-possessed men meet him. So two men come out that are that are possessed by demons. And this is where Jesus is going to exercise his authority over the spiritual realm now, showing his, it's, a, it's all progressively getting even more amazing. Um, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So they were amazingly um, strong and causing a, a major problem. And behold, they cried out. Now there's a lot of amazing things here. They cried out, What have you to do with us? O Son of God. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now first, what is very striking is demons know who they're dealing with. And in verse 27, the disciples that are following him just ask the question, Who is this guy? (laughs) So demons have an understanding of who Christ is. Better most, most of the time than even us. That's what's shown to us firstly. And the second is that they also said, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now, this is different than the title that's given in verse 20, Son of Man. So we can see that there's, there's two titles being given, Son of Man, highlighting that he is the Messiah, sh- spoken of in Daniel 7. Now, this is, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Why do they call him God instead of man? Because the, the enemy, the, the, the enemy of demons is God. And so we know that, God, you are our absolute enemy. And Jesus, you are the son of our enemy. And so they're given this identification. You are the son of God, our enemy. What are you going to do with us? Like, what are you doing? And so that's why they call him son of God. They identify him as their, as their, their complete opposite, their enemy. And then he says, have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, this is speaking of the very end. If you read Revelation, you know in the very end, where Jesus is going to defeat all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and all of his demons and all his minions, cast them into the lake of fire. And they know this. They know who he is, and they know their future. That does not stop them from trying to terrorize all of his believers as long as they can. They, their goal is to get as many people to fall away from Christ as possible before their time comes. But they're speaking. It's not supposed to come yet. I thought that's supposed to happen later. Are you come to torment us before the time? Now they ask two questions in which Jesus doesn't answer either one verbally. He answers with his actions. Uh, So they ask these two questions. They're freaking out. They're like, oh no, Jesus is here. We're done. Now a herd of pigs. Now this is how we know it's a Gentile region. Big herd of pigs. Jews aren't real big on pigs if you didn't know. Um, Bacon tastes good. Anyway, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And then the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now you should know that demons desire embodiment. They desire to be inside of bodies. And they they really want to be inside of 
humans and terrorize them and cause them to go away. But if they can't be inside humans, at least just throw us into the pigs. We, we want to be in something. We don't want to not be in something. So they beg, throw us into the pigs. And he said to them, go. Now, if, if we're an alert reader, we're seeing that this word go lifts off the page from this very same chapter in verse 9. In verse 9, the centurion says, I understand authority because I'm over about a hundred different guys. And if I tell them go, they go and come and come. But he says, if I tell them go, they go. Talking about Christ's or talking about the authority that he has and saying, so I understand your authority. You can do anything you want. If you say go, it's going to happen. And here we see Matthew pointing us up to to eight, nine. And he says, Jesus says, go one word, go all of the demons that are in the two men go into the pigs and then they came out and they went to the pigs and behold the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters what the world's that all about like have you ever had thought i mean you've read this so many times what's going on with the killing all the pigs like jesus you just killed these herdsmen's like lifestyle like they don't have any any way to make money anymore are you insensitive like you well first thing is um, Jesus doesn't hate pigs um, and he doesn't hate the herdsmen. But he is highlighting to us that people, the salvation of these two men, are more important than money that you can be made or animals or anything else created in the created order under, under men. The salvation of these two men are absolutely important. And he tells them to go and they obey. And it says the herdsmen, they freak out and they... They flee, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what has happened to the demon-possessed men. So they just do their first century equivalent of a Twitter, like, this is what happened. Everything's going freaking. It's just like, words out to everybody, and the whole Decapolis, everybody knows. And they go into the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened, not just to their pigs, but to the two men. The two men got saved. The authority of Jesus walks into a city, sees two men. He wants to save them. He wants to drive the demons out. What's going to happen? He's going to drive the two demons out. If Christ wants to save someone, he has the authority to save them. This is the third thing I want you to see. The authority of Jesus demands for those whom he desires to be saved, to be saved. That's encouraging. If Christ wants someone to be saved, they will be. We don't know who they are. You don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. But we know... He's given us a mission to go make disciples, Matthew 28. He's given us a mission to go see people come to Christ. And we can go with the authority of Christ that if I go and and tell people how to know Christ, tell them about the gospel, tell them about his death on the cross for us and the imputed righteousness that we get of Christ, if he wants them to be saved, they will be saved. What's not shown in Matthew, which is in Mark and in Luke, is something that's pretty interesting. It says this, not given in the in the Matthew text, but in the Mark and Luke text. Um, it says this: Jesus tells tells these two men after this had all happened. We, we, yeah, let me tell you what he says first. He says, "Go home to your family." This is what he tells the two men: "Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you." tells them 
to go tell people about the mercy that they have given that Christ has given them. So as we're looking at this, here's the deal. These two men were no different then. These two men are us. Their condition was demon possession. Our condition was sinful corruption. And Christ has saved us and he has given us a mission to go now and tell your family, tell your roommate, tell your crazy uncle, tell every person you know how much the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had on you. That's what he's sending you out as a missionary, just like these two people. We see in the text here, these people didn't fully understand who they were dealing with. It says, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus and like, oh, you did this. No, that's not what they say. Look what they say. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Get out of here. We don't understand you. What are you going to do with the authority of Christ and that's being shown to you from this text and in your life that's so tangible you know it's there? You're going to shove him off like the people from um, the Gadarenes? He's showing you his authority to call you as his disciple, to call you as a follower. He's showing you his authority that he has authority over all the created realm and over all that's not seen. He has unbelievable authority. What's progressively going to happen as we go through chapters 8 and 9 is amazing. I want you to see this. He's healing people of leprosy. He's healing a paralyzed servant. He's healing Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. He starts healing many people that had sicknesses. Then he has the authority to call people. Then he has the authority, he's establishing authority over the entire created order. He's establishing his authority over the entire spiritual realm. And all of his authority is going to a pinnacle. What is it going to? What we see in 9-2 is when a paralyzed man is brought in front of him, he doesn't heal the man right away. He forgives him of his sins. He has the authority building up to, I am not coming just to do miracles and healings. I am coming, as Matthew one twenty one says, to forgive sin. I'm establishing my authority, which is far greater than you can imagine. I have come to save sinners. That's the authority I have. To save you. Not just physically heal you for your 75 years, but to spiritually heal you forever. Save you from your sin. And when he does, just like these two men, he's sending you out on mission to go tell what the Lord has done for you and the mercy he has shown to you. So what are you going to do with Jesus' authority right now? What are you going to do with it? It's a costly decision to follow Christ. Maybe you can think right now, is it really costing me anything? And what would that look like? It's going to look different for every single one of us. I don't want to throw out any absolutes. It's supposed to look like this. Throw out your iPhone. Maybe not. Throw away your TV. Maybe not. Move to Africa. Maybe not. I don't know. So I'm not going to throw out these absolutes that it has to look like this. But it's supposed to cost us something. It should cost us to take ourselves off the throne of our hearts and to kill sin in our life with reckless abandon. We should marvel. We should have faith. And we should be sent on mission like these two men. That's what the authority of God in our life looks like. We're going to go into our time of worship. And however the Holy Spirit's leading, I ask that you would be obedient. You can stay seated for the first song if you need and think and pray and read. 
You can stand and just sing out to our great God who has authority over us, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, I invite you to put your faith in Him and be forgiven of all your sin. He has the authority to forgive you of your sin. If you're not a follower of Christ, please come talk to me or the person you came with. I'm going to pray and then we're going to our time of worship. And however the Holy Spirit's leading right now, would you be obedient to that? Confess, repent, pray, stand, sing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that it's just amazing. It shows us so many amazing facets of you and who you are. And so we pray, God, that we would, we would live lives worthy of the calling. That we would live lives that reflect back to you the worth that you deserve. That as the authority of Christ over our life is being shown to us, that we would want to let it cost everything. That we would be sent like these men to live on mission and go tell what the Lord has done and the mercy He has shown to us specifically at the cross where we are forgiven of our sins. Be with us now as we worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.